Hello, thanks for listening to Theory Lab. I'm Joe Cotter of the American Cancer Society's Research Department here with my friend Susanna Greer. Hey, Joe. My favorite immunologist. Um, <laughs> so you spoke with Dr. Gerard Silvestri. He's, um, okay, get ready. Got a lot of titles here. First, he's a lung cancer pulmonologist, and he sees patients. And I would never want to be his patient, but I guess if I had to be somebody's patient, he seems like maybe one of the best. Uh, options you could have. He's also a professor and endowed chair at the Medical University of South Carolina, former president of the American College of Chest Physicians, and one of the reasons we spoke with him is he, he's on the steering committee of the National Lung Cancer Roundtable. Yeah, Joe, I I thought this was a such a fantastic conversation around lung cancer. We start off with some startling statistics and end in such a positive place of just hope. Uh, one of the things that Gerard said is that he has never been as optimistic as he is now. Um, and he has been in the lung cancer space and been just an amazing contributor for, for quite some time. So we're going to hear a lot about how do we diagnose lung cancer how do we reduce risk for lung cancer? Who should be screened for lung cancer? When? I mean, all of this really great information. And one of the things that I wanted to talk to Gerard about is how do you make decisions as a community of where you want to impact both patients and practitioners in lung cancer? So we had a really good conversation about this National Lung Cancer Roundtable, his involvement, uh, the impact, and he's just so excited about a space that has been scary for so many people for so long that I, I can't wait for you to listen. All right. Well, let's get into it. Thanks, Susanna. Good morning, Gerard. How are you? I'm great. Thank you very much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. We're really enthusiastic to talk to you. This is Lung Cancer Awareness Month in November, and I can think of no better person than to help us to understand the all there is to know right now about lung cancer. But before we dive in, many of our audience members are going to be interested in lung cancer and especially interested in you. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Yeah, so I'm a uh, lung cancer pulmonologist, a lung specialist, but um, unlike uh, seeing folks every day with asthma or COPD or tuberculosis, I almost exclusively take care of patients with lumps and bumps and spots and shadows and things that turn out to be lung cancer, and I work in our cancer center. So every Tuesday, I see between five and seven new patients with uh, lumps and bumps, and then my job is to, uh, to do three things, you know, sort of ask the question. What is it? That's the diagnosis. Where is it? That's the stage. And what can we do about it? Those are the treatment options. So my job is to do mostly the diagnosis and staging piece. And then once we get the appropriate stage, and, and that's really important for any cancer, but particularly for lung cancer because treatments vary by stage, uh, then it's my uh, job to deliver it to the, uh, per, the patient to the appropriate treatment. So whether that be surgery um, or chemotherapy or radiation therapy or targeted therapy, or in some cases, um, even just uh, palliative therapy. It's, it's my job to make sure they get to the right place for the best uh, chance both of a survival and improved quality of life. Um, the rest of the days are doing some procedures related to staging, but also 80% um, um, of my time I spend doing research and trying to, uh, to look at different aspects of lung cancer care. So that's sort of my job. It's, it's all around lung cancer. All right. Well, then it sounds like we have the right person on the phone to become 
more informed about lung cancer, can you, uh, thinking about all of that, that you spend a lot of your time in the staging and diagnostic part of a patient's lung cancer journey, um, and then uh, time in research around lung cancer, what, what is it that you wish more people understood about lung cancer? Yeah, so first of all, you know, November is Lung Cancer Awareness Month. Um, I, I want people to know a few big picture things. Um, the first is that uh, there are more people who will die of lung cancer than, uh, than the next three cancers combined. So more uh, people will die of lung cancer than colorectal and breast cancer and prostate cancer combined. More importantly, more women will die of lung cancer than all other female cancers combined. So more women will die of lung cancer than breast cancer, uterine cancer, cervical cancer, and ovarian cancer combined. Um, so it is a massive killer in our in our country. Um, so that's the first part. Um, the the second part is is um, no matter how long you smoked, um, you can really reduce your risk of lung cancer by discontinuing cigarettes. So so the prevention portion of this is incredibly important, and uh, we've seen uh, large reductions in the new cases of lung cancer um, with people who can stop smoking, and and after a certain number of years of quitting smoking, your risk of lung cancer goes down to uh, very close to uh, normal, but not quite normal. So so that's incredibly important as well. Um, the the last part that I'd like people to know about is that um, over the past six or seven years, we have the ability to screen for lung cancer among high risk individuals, and so um, right now there are eight million Americans who, because of uh, the age group they fit into and their smoking habits, uh, even sm former smokers could be eligible for screening where we might be able to pick up early stage disease that can be operated on and has a much better chance of being cured than late stage disease. That was kind of a bad news, good news piece. So the incredibly bad news is what a killer lung cancer is. The really good news is that we can all reduce our risk, no matter how we fall into that risk category. And then you shared with us a message around screening for high-risk individuals. So I, I don't know that we all understand exactly what a high-risk patient is. Uh, could you maybe clarify that for us? Sure. So um, in tw 2011, um, the, there was a publication of the very large screening trial in the United States where half the 50,000 or so people enrolled in the trial got a, a, a CT or a CAT scan of their chest uh, once a year, um, and half did not. And they found that uh, the, the risk of death from lung cancer was, was reduced by 20%, which is a big number. Um, who was involved in that trial? These are people in the age group 55 to 74, um, and actually the coverage for this benefit goes up to 77, um, who had smoked at least 30 pack years. And I think for the audience, I should explain what that is. A pack year is a pack of cigarettes a day for a year, or, for example, two packs of cigarettes for 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 six months, that would still be a pack year, um, and then you had to have 30 pack year history. So that makes you pretty high risk. So just think of it in general terms: a pack a day from when you were uh, uh, 
20 to 50 would give you eligibility to be screened. Two packs a day for 15 years would make you eligible to be screened. The age group, 55 to 74, and you have to be in pretty good shape to undergo surgery. So you, you couldn't be so sick that the screening wouldn't benefit you. Hmm. So the high-risk group is there. Um, the one other thing about being a former smoker is you had to have quit uh, within, if you quit, you had to have quit within 15 years of being eligible for screening. And the reason for that is actually quite, quite good, which goes something like after you've quit for more than 15 years, your risk of lung cancer is so low that it's not worth going through all the screening uh, procedures. Hmm. So are there other issues around, so, so if you fall into this high risk category, is this something that should we set this up now? Is there a, a timing element to when we should be screened if we're in the high-risk category? And right. I guess the other question is, where, where do you go to have, for this to happen? Yeah, so that's, those are both great questions. The first part of the question, um, uh, the when you should be screened is, well, if you fit into this high-risk category, you should be screened yearly uh, until you fall out of the high-risk cancer uh, category or unless you're diagnosed with cancer um, or uh, if you age out, meaning you're older than age 77. Um, uh, that's the when. Um, you should get a yearly low-dose CAT scan, low-dose radiation CAT scan. So we don't want people exposed to lots of radiation. So these are low-dose scans. Um, the where is actually really important. You should be in a center that uh, knows what they're doing about screening and has the ancillary services um, like uh, a, uh, a uh, dedicated chest surgeon, like radiologists who understand the readings. Um, so so you, should be, you should be in a place that can really care for you. Um, and there are a lot of centralized programs, like our university has a program and others or, uh, other universities, but also other large community hospitals have programs that are really dedicated to doing uh, safe and effective screening. Um, and, you know, you can talk to your primary care provider um, about this, and they uh, hopefully will have this information. Interestingly, um, and sort of a little bit sadly, the uptake of screening has been um, not so great so far. Um, it's, it's only about 4 and, and, and rising, but 4% of the eligible Americans that could be screened are being screened in the United States. So awareness is a big deal. Um, we want folks to get in. The other nice thing about screening programs is when the federal government, uh, when the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services uh, provided a coverage benefit for screening, they also insisted that we have discussions uh, and resources for smokers who are coming to be screened. And so it's our obligation to provide them uh, with resources, um, either um, pharmacotherapy or counseling, uh, to, help them, uh, to help them stop smoking. So that's really, really in important. And I'd say one final thing, um, adherence to screening is important. If you get a screen and you don't have cancer, that's great news. But if you don't keep coming back yearly for your screens, um, it, it, it really hurts you in terms of finding that cancer in the future. So we need people to come back on a yearly basis. That's something called adherence. Um, and there are sometimes challenges with adherence. People live a far distance. People have uh, changes in their insurance status. People um, just sort of think, hey, I'm scot-free now that I had a, a, a clean scan. And that's not true. You, you have to come back for your follow-up screens. Hmm. Okay. So all really great information. If, if, if we are high risk and you helped us to understand exactly what high risk means, we need to 
to talk and, and get some help, talk to our primary care physicians and get annual screenings and make sure we're sticking with that for follow-up um, to hopefully reduce the incidence and mortality of lung cancer. So hopefully if you and I chat in another year, maybe that 4% will be, will be higher. Um, that certainly gives us lots of room for improvement. I guess that's the good news. I, I do have a question though. So we've spent some time talking about high-risk individuals, but of course, not everyone who gets lung cancer has any history of tobacco use. Maybe could you talk to us a little bit about that and what what can we do to reduce our relative risk, I guess, for lung cancer? Right. So, uh, you know, f first thing I would say is, again, uh, between 80 and 85 percent of all lung cancers are in cigarette smokers. Um, and so we don't want to ever discount that the vast majority of cancer could be prevented if people either never start smoking or quit. Um, this second part is really a difficult one, right? So you see these patients who come in who've sort of done all the right things and still end up with lung cancer. They've never smoked. Um, what, what can be done? You know, there are a few general preventive measures for any kind of cancer. So good dietary intake, lots of veggies, um, exercise is really important, keeping your weight in check is really important. We know all of the sort of bad sides of that obesity um, and uh, lack of exercise and, and lack of sort of living right. Um, and, and again, I'm not talking about going out and running a marathon. I'm talking about basically your basic exercise, being active, being uh, fit, being uh, cognizant of your diet, everything in moderation sort of things. Um, when you look at the the, the, the generation that lives to a really elderly age, what you don't find is people doing crazy diets or anything else. So you just do everything in moderation. So just a general risk reduction would be a reasonable diet and a reasonable um, uh, amount of exercise. And then it's genetics, right? So um, it, there is some sort of bad luck in terms of your, uh, of your genetics, and I wish I, I had the answer to that. What I will tell you is biologically, the patients with never smoke who have cancer seem to have a different type of tumor. And one of the really good things on the treatment side, not the prevention side, is that we're really starting to individualize uh, people's tumor and categorize it really well to look at special markers that they might have where they can get, quote, targeted therapies that will help their tumor. And so patients, unfortunately, who do develop cancers that are never smokers actually seem to do a bit better from a mm. longevity standpoint uh, for probably two reasons. One is the biology of their tumor appears to be a little bit different. And the second is they don't have the other smoking-related comorbidities. Mm. Um, by comorbidities, I mean they don't have uh, a high risk of also having emphysema or heart disease or stroke. Um, so they do seem more fit and able to uh, undergo, uh, never smokers seem more fit, able to undergo treatments and have a different biology. I, I hope that provides some hope. I, I really, honestly, um, uh, over the years, physicians who are in this field um, really do feel devastated when anyone gets cancer, but mm. particularly for someone who uh, has done all the right things and, and still gets cancer. Um, but, but, but honestly, I, I wish I could give you better news on that, um, but I can't. You've mentioned several times these new kids on the block when we think about therapies and precision medicine. It, is there something or a piece of what we're thinking about as far as treatment options that you're excited about? 
Well, you know what, and again, I'm, you can't see me because I'm on the other end of the phone, but I'm 58 <laughs> and I'm bald, and so I've been at this for more than 25 years, um, and I had hair when I started. And, you know, when we first started doing this, um, it, we really had a sort of generally nihilistic viewpoint of lung cancer. The survivorship when I started was about 5% at five mm-hmm. years. So 5%, five out of my 100 patients would be alive at five years or seven or eight. For a long time, we were stuck in the 12 and 13% percent range and it's still a, a fairly bad disease particularly if it presents advanced but I have never been in my career so optimistic as I am now that there are uh, breakthroughs and the breakthroughs are on sort of two ends of the spectrum the first end is finding a target on your tumor um, that you can uh, attack that target with a very specific drug that basically goes in and blows up the cancer cell, but just the cancer cell and, and um, doesn't really affect the patient too much in, in, in any other way because it's really targeted to cancer cells with that specific um, uh, with that specific marker on it. So that's the one thing that's been really exciting about that. We're now even into second-generation ge- drugs that are targeting these pathways that um, uh, can work even better than the first generation mm-hmm. of those targeted drugs. So that's been really exciting. The second part of this that's been fascinating, and I think patients are seeing it because they're seeing um, TV commercials, et cetera, has been this whole immunotherapy boom. And just to put that into lay terms, uh, and, and I watched the science develop, a long time ago we thought the only thing you could do to, to cure cancer was to attack rapidly dividing cells, which cancer cells divide rapidly. Problem is that stomach cells are the lining of the stomach and the intestine also rapidly divides, and you get new lining every you know ten or fifteen days, and so does your blood counts. You get new mm-hmm. blood cells. So what we saw with what I would call my grandpa's chemotherapy mm-hmm. um, was that you'd not only kill the cancer, but you'd really have terrible side effects for patients because you'd lower their blood counts. You'd you know make them lose their hair. You would you would you would um, they'd get sick to their stomach because they were you know having the cells affected there. Um, and while all that was going on, and believe me, a lot of good science occurred there, and we still use better but traditional chemotherapy to fight cancers throughout the body. At that same time, there was a group of doctors that said, hey, look, we produce cancer cells every day. You and I produce a small number of cancer cells all the time. But our immune system, which helps fight infections and everything else, sweeps those up and gets rid of them with no questions asked. However, maybe something is a little bit off on people's immune system that develop cancers, um, that they just can't, the immune system is being blocked from doing its job. And so a whole, and by the way, these people were a little bit considered heretics at the time, like, oh my gosh, you guys are ridiculous. Um, And recently, one of the theorists of that won the Nobel Prize in Science, so they were on the right track, and they just sort of went off and believed in their science and said, look, maybe there are things blocking the immune system, and they found one of those things that really blocks the immune system from coming in and killing the cancer cell. So it's a a blocker on the cancer cell that prevented the immune system from coming in, and then as soon as they identified that, they were able to develop drugs in the pipeline that overcame that blocker that allowed your natural immune system to come in and now attack the cancer. And so 
what we've seen over the past five or seven years has been this explosion in immunotherapy, uh, which, again, boosts the immune system, allows the immune system to do its job and go in and kill cancer cells. So some of the, some of the really good outcomes we've seen have been in these targeted agents and in, these, uh, in this immunotherapy realm. And we're starting to view lung cancer in some of these realms as maybe we can get this to either be completely eradicated or to a chronic disease state that's controllable with these targeted therapies. Um, so that's been the really exciting thing for us to watch. Wow, that's a, an incredible journey, especially one to have seen over the course of your career. I think that one thing it might help our audience to understand a little bit about how how do you and your colleagues elevate these issues to the national level and how do you have discussions and, and how are changes made and how do we develop guidelines? And I know you're involved in a lot of organizations, but I had a question about a specific one. I wanted to know uh, more about the National Lung, Lung Cancer Roundtable. I know you're a member of the steering committee. Um, maybe can you just help us understand what, what's the mission of this roundtable? Yeah, so um, thank you for asking that. And, and, and I know perhaps one of the reasons is because it's run from the American Cancer Society. Leadership there has been outstanding. Um, I, you know, to, to be fair, I think we're in our third year now. And there have been national uh, cancer roundtables and colorectal cancer for 20 years and breast cancer for a great deal of time. And what they're generally meant to do um, is to bring together many of the different pieces and parts of caring for the cancer continuum and sort of put them together in one room. So I'm a lung specialist, and I go to my lung meetings, um, and there might be a surgeon who goes to surgical meetings and talks about lung cancer, and then there's the oncologist who go to their major meeting, and then there are advocacy groups um, that have their major meeting, and then there are smoking cessation and tobacco control people who go to their meeting. And the roundtable um, is meant to bring together all these disparate groups um, and say, hey, look, let's look at this at, a, at the you know, 30,000-foot level and then you know, work together and even now get down into the weeds with different of uh, these multidisciplinary groups to, um, to help uh, do a few things. One, raise awareness. Two, um, uh, develop uh, guidelines. Three, develop patient-facing education materials um, and the like. And so, you know, that I, I want to be perfectly honest. When I was first asked to do this, I was like, oh, you know, this is just going to be a bunch of, you know, baloney and we're going to sit around a table and do a lot of talking and nothing's going to happen. And um, But I said I'll do it and and when I and now that I've gotten there and really gotten involved with uh the different groups um two things have happened to me one is it's uh really made me appreciate what my colleagues in other professions and particularly in the advocacy advocacy realm uh like the cancer society but there are other advocacy groups for lung cancer um what they do and how much they care about patients and patient facing problems and how important it is for all of us to uh, consider the plight of the patient and make sure that we're speaking to patients in plain English and to providing education for them um, and making them feel less stressed, more inclusive. Um, and particularly for lung cancer where many of the patients are smokers and there's this general belief out there that, well, you, you sort of did this to yourself. We can't mm. really help you. Um, and taking away that stigma is incredibly important. So for us, um, it, it, for me, it's been a great uh, organization to get involved with because 
Um, you can have a broader impact, um, but more importantly, you can learn from colleagues in, di in different professions um, and then start to collaborate with them, even in the science side of, uh, of this. So it's been a really, really good uh, group, and, and my hope is that uh, we continue to make strides within that organization. So just to follow up, I think it's it's interesting to hear you say that even at this stage in your career, you learned so much just being involved and having lots of other players at the table, um, including advocates and uh, other other parts of the professional practice. So it, what would be your, I mean, we're rounding out the year, what, what would be your hope for maybe uh, 2020? How do you think the National Lung Council Roundtable could really use this group of um, individuals to, to make the biggest impact? Yeah, so there are so many ways, but um, for for us, I think on the screening realm, it's really to get the message out about where you can get safe and effective screening and to make sure that uh, we are getting the appropriate people screened for lung cancer and providing the locations, providing the expertise, providing guidance to our uh, primary care practitioners, providing guidance to the rest of the healthcare community. Um, and doing that even at a state-by-state -state level, and there's some incredible um, uh, uh, work that's being done in states like Kentucky where the smoking rates are some of the highest in the country, and these, there are underserved populations who just don't have access because they're rural um, to getting these people screened. So, so that's one area to be really impactful and increase the number of eligible people being screened. Um, another area is this whole area of making sure that every cancer patient with advanced or metastatic uh, lung cancer gets their cancer profiled. And so uh, our group, uh, I work with a group within the bigger group uh, where we're really making sure that uh, there's a strong push towards education, um, uh, both on the physician side and on the patient side. Uh, to make sure that patients ask for this, come in and sort of say, hey, like, you know what, what does my cancer look like? No, no, don't just tell me it's lung cancer, sir <laughs> or ma'am. Just tell me what exactly is my profile and am, am I eligible for some of these targeted agents? And on the other side, to make sure physicians understand that, um, you know, uh, the analogy I, I like to use is we would not think of treating a breast cancer patient without knowing their hormonal, the, the tumor's hormonal status or this mm -hmm. one uh, uh, marker called HER2. I mean, we would, it would be malpractice if the, if the uh, oncologist didn't, uh, didn't look for those markers to see how the tumor would respond to different therapies. And yet, you know, we aren't profiling all our patients with lung cancer at the same rate. Part of that is just because it's so new in lung cancer. We haven't had the targets yet, um, but we need to push that education out to our, practice, to our providers and our patients alike. So that's another real goal for me within the roundtable. The third is that we really have a terrific uh, tobacco control, tobacco uh, cessation group, and I think it's incredibly important uh, to, to work on the prevention side of this. Quitting smoking is is incredibly hard, and um, we need to make sure that we're supporting our patients, not passing judgment on them for being smokers and being addicted, understanding that they're not going to quit the first time around, maybe uh, understanding that there are lots of resources they can get at uh, to quit. So 
um, I think that Roundtable is going to try to work from you know one end to the other on on this. There's other groups working on gender issues. Um, so lung cancer is different in men than women. There uh, there are groups working on making sure that early stage patients get surgery. So there's a I can't even I, I'm trying to think of all the projects. I can't even tell you there. I think there's something like ten or twelve subgroups within our group within the Roundtable working on different projects. There's a you lot know, going on there. Yeah. What, what what I took away from everything you said is just kind of it's a, a really lovely explanation of the changing face of lung cancer. And I love that this group is on the forefront of that. So many exciting things. I mean, everything from just as a society, us being more patient and understanding about smoking um, and really working on that prevention piece all the way to screening and profiling and all these things that will ultimately impact survival. So best of luck, and, and we're so glad you're involved. Um, I want to wrap up because I think there are a lot of people out there that struggle with lung cancer. We started our conversation with some really scary statistics. Um, but I want to end on a positive note. Um, this has been a really illustrative conversation, and um, thank you for that. But for our listeners who are cancer patients or who love somebody who's a cancer patient, um, do you have a message that you'd like to share with these listeners in particular around lung cancer? Yeah. First, I will tell you, uh, you know, I lost my dad at a, a relatively young age to cancer and watched what it did to our family of seven children and a mom and uh, coming from a laborer family and uh, understanding the financial stress, the emotional stress, the how each member of the family dealt with this. Believe me, every time I sit in front of a patient who's being told they have cancer, I, I, I can never understand what they're personally going through, but I understand the general of what people go through. And I would say a couple things. One, if you are a uh, cancer patient, you should understand you're not alone. There are so many people out there and so many support groups, so many family members, so many friends who are so willing uh, to help. Please don't uh, sit, uh, sit in your house alone. Um, people want to help. They oftentimes don't know how to help, but they want to help if it means bringing a meal or if it means sitting with you and talking and chatting or even not talking or even if it means coming and joking with you um, uh, or taking you out uh, uh, for a walk. All those people are out there. If, you, if you're a cancer patient, please don't feel alone. Um, the second thing is if you're a caregiver, um, you get so much credit from me and the rest of the world. It is hard to take care of a cancer patient, um, and we and the patients themselves so appreciate that. But for caregivers, you have to make sure you're getting enough rest and, and have the strength to, uh, to, to make sure that you're recharged and you can help take care of that uh, patient. And believe me, no cancer patient goes through it alone, and caregivers um, at times need counseling, at times need support. Um, and again, for the same kinds of people that there are support for, um, uh, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna have that support. Um, the third thing I would say is um, demand excellence. Patients and caregivers should demand excellence. Please don't be afraid to ask your doctor difficult questions. I often encourage my patients to write everything down. Write your questions down if they come up during the week and bring in questions. Doctors love that. Have your list of questions ready. Um, we may not get to them all. We, you may not be satisfied with the answer, but at least you'll feel satisfied that you were addressed 
for your questions. Um, and, and one last thing, and it's, it's, it sounds crazy, but listen, this is not the same disease as it was 20 years ago. The treatments are much better. I don't want people to lose hope, and hope's a word we seem to throw around all the time, um, but, but there's so much more hope for our, our cancer patients today than there was 20 uh, years ago, and that's not just for lung cancer. That's for all cancers. Um, so I, I want people to, to not leave this call with some of the harsh statistics I gave at the beginning, but understand that the uh, that every day those statistics are getting better and better um so those are the things i'd, I'd tell my patients and and i tell their family members so i hope that helps a little bit anyway absolutely um and i want to let you get back to it um but on behalf of the entire lung cancer community from patients to practitioners just want to say thank you we're really lucky to have you in this fight and um best of luck and all you do all right thank you so much